0: Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia Apostol, a fat professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears, we will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against weight stigma, diet culture, fat phobia, ableism, racism, etc. You can get more Fat Joy goodness, including how you can support the podcast through my newsletter at fatjoy.substack.com. And for episode transcripts, book reviews, and show notes, head to the Fat Joy website at fatjoy.life. I am so glad you're here. Enjoy this episode. Hello, lovelies. Welcome back to the Fat Joy Podcast. I'm your host, Sophia, and with me today is Anastasia Kidd. Hello. Hello. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so (laughs) excited that you're here, Anna. Um, Okay, so... And I found, as I do with so many people, I found out about you on social and you, because I think you were releasing or about to release your book that is called Fat Church, claiming a gospel of fat liberation. And I was like, ooh, I must know more. I must know this person. And so we've already had a chat. We had a little connection call and we were like, oh man, we should have recorded that. And then we we're like, oh, well, let's actually book the one that we're going to record. So here we are. And I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, why don't you start by telling us a little bit
1: about who you are? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I sit in a theological seminary in terms of my work, um, and I'm a theological educator. I, I work in, in contextual education in um, Uh, a a Protestant uh, progressive Christian seminary, um, and I love to teach. So what I am is a teacher, and I've been a teacher since I was um, little, and instructing my friends and you know when, when other people played house I played classroom and um, went to teachers college in my like eighth grade year or whatever like all, all of those things of, of thinking I was going to be um, actually a sex ed teacher that's what I wanted to be um, and uh, I, I kind of have always been fascinated with body with embodiment um, and then uh, also a person of faith. So I am a very progressive uh, Christian minister in the United Church of Christ tradition, uh, ordained a few years back. And um, I serve a little parish um, with my husband in Truro, Massachusetts, uh, right on the tip of the Cape. So I'm a pastor, an educator, um, and a fat activist. I'm just somebody who has um, come into this space about uh, with about a decade of research, but never really dipping my toe into the work of of spreading the good news, as it were, that's what we're used to in, in the church, spreading the good news of fat liberation and body liberation more broadly. So I would say I am an evangelist for um, body liberation as an expression of righting the wrongs that the the church and others have written on fat bodies for millennia. And so I'm here to to teach, to pastor, and to uh, to liberate, <laughs> to help liberate. I can't do it myself, but yeah, <laughs>
0: that's amazing. That's amazing to bring fat liberation into like so explicitly into an organized religion setting, into the church. Like that is so new for me. Other than a couple of guests I've spoken to, it like I'd never heard about this before. Um, so the second question is always, what's your relationship to the word fat? And I know we're going to get to my next, my question after that, which is, I'm so curious about the moment where you just pulled all the dots together. So maybe end us there. (laughs) So what's been your relationship to the word fat? Like what was your trajectory? And yeah, basically how did, how did you end up writing this book and doing
1: this type of work in the world? Yeah, I, you know, I grew up fat. I mean, I've never not been fat. And so I, um, like literally chubby baby all the way through. And um, so I was always, and I remember pretty distinctly the, the moment at which I, that became a problem in my family. And so I had a really, uh, a lot of um, commercial diets. My mother, um, I, my parents divorced when I was really little. So I grew up with my grandparents. So my mother was 50 when I came to live with her and she was just, her body was beginning to change. Um, as bodies naturally do, she was gaining weight in her middle and, and upper ages. And because of that, she was perpetually dieting. And so she had never had a girl. She had raised two boys, my, my dad and my uncle. And so. At that point, she just was terrified that this chubby little kid, um, you know, taking after her dad, taking after her biological mom, uh, was going to wind up being, um, fat like she was beginning to feel in her own body. And so I was fat ever since I was little, but I always used chubby, big boned, you know, um, and was really afraid of, of fatness, was put on, you know, my mom went on Weight Watchers, but I would go with her to Weight Watchers. And so I was kind of the mascot of the group, but I was weighed. I was put on a diet. And how old were you at this time? So my first diet was at um, the age of five, and I remember like that. But the the commercial, the first commercial diet was Weight Watchers at the age of eight, um, and and I remember growing up thinking that was the norm. That like a lot, and I didn't understand like people had piano and soccer. And I had piano and weight watchers, right? And um and so there and I, I didn't do soccer because I remember not fitting in the um outfits and my mom saying like, I don't want you, they they don't have your size of the outfit and I don't want you to wear something different. So all of my fat came with this like shame and embarrassment ramekin of sauce and um and so it really was like i didn't go into brownies or or girl scouts because um you know mom and i um and i i don't want to she was the most wonderful mom and had so many internalized body issues right but you know she didn't want me to be in that because i was not able to sort of dress in the same outfits as everybody else couldn't find a, an outfit my size so so like there were um reasons why I knew my fatness was other, but then I was put in things that worked with my fatness. I was put into, uh, you know, drama camp and, um, you know, no sports, but lots of drama camp. No, you know, those kind of, that kind of thing. And so my life slowly became sort of, um, defined in some real ways by my fatness. Um, which, uh, you know, ultimately, I knew I was different because of that but I also most of my friends were different too because when you start getting into theater camps and all these other youth groups and things like that you do wind up with a kind of diverse uh crew in high school um and then yeah just I I my college years I did some pretty um significant hidden dieting where you uh, know you know I would just eat cereal and and uh uh, some of it was bad cooking not being able to cook very well but also it was also trying to you know it was back in the days of low fat uh, but no no worries about sugar um and so a packet of gummy bears and some diet Coke kept me under my weight Watchers points with no trouble at all um until my hair started falling out so you know that kind of thing so so you know it wasn't it, it I I just remember thinking like okay and and I would just get you know, worried about my fatness, um, really worried about the the death fat aspect of it. You know, um, told very young that I was going to die young if I didn't take the weight off, all those kind of things. So, very, very similar to a lot of folks who go through this, um, as a young child, put on FenFen, put on you know, all those 90s drugs. And can I ask Annette,
0: during all during this time, were you? participating, um, or like, were you going to church? Was, was church a part of your life this whole time too?
1: Yes, that's a great question. So, yes, absolutely. And there I was getting, um, I I grew up in the South where church is as much cultural as it is about one's faith. You, you ask someone where they go to church, um, and that kind of situates them in the community in some ways. Um, so I was Southern Methodist growing up, um, pious uh you know in a more conservative way than i am now um but that included a you know and it was right when there's a person named glenn chamlin who did this like way down workshop um that just got really really um uh popular uh netflix has a recent uh, thing about her that i was actually really disappointed didn't talk about so much of her It talked about her empire and kind of how she changed as it grew, but didn't talk about the damage she did because Christian weight loss was her platform.
0: Oh, that's, that's what weighed down, literally like losing weight. Oh.
1: It was, you can pray to God and if you're not thin enough, it's because you haven't prayed hard enough and you don't have enough willpower. I bought every book, my mom and I went to work I mean, it was terrible, right? So very much reinforced um in the church that um you know, to be a desirable woman to my husband, which was my only option, um would have meant to be thinner and um and that was the end goal of my sort of Christian womanhood a wife and mother
0: and and the fact that you and well i made an assumption in that moment did you
1: lose weight like did you do the weight cycling thing the great yeah i weight cycled um through and you know honestly i was more just growing my body was growing and shaping mm-hmm. um so always fat never never really lost enough to have been nothing but fat but i went from small fat to mid fat um now in the super fat range now but um but that small to mid-fat was sort of where I landed, um, depending on what my diet regimen was at the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and I was just thinking in that environment where it's like you're walking, this is a weird way to say it, I don't know if I'm saying it right, but almost like you're walking around with like your quote-unquote sin visible or your lack of piousness, piety, piety, visible, piety. Yeah, because it's like, well, you're obviously not praying enough. Oh, God, talk about an a, another layer of shame to walk around with.
1: Right. There's this this this, this uh, scripture that says your body is a temple, and it's used in that tiny little phrase to just browbeat anyone who's who's not. I heard that growing up too. And of course, right? So out of context for what it actually means but oh my it's god also- we're
0: gonna have to go back to what it
1: actually means i'm well, gonna write that yeah, down <laughs> we, we do that. Um, but you know it and it and it is um it, yeah we can definitely talk about that um but fatness is not a sin nor is it a moral failing of any kind and yet when but neither is queerness um neither is it uh to be born disabled right with some sort of disability all of these things Sinfulness equals disease was a concept that was throughout the early church. So the idea that if we are more pious, if we live a certain way, that is about, you know, prayer, simple, clean eating, things like that. And so you see a lot of those early medical um, books that are being spread throughout the colonies are actually religious tones that have health as a secondary piece to it or or health tomes that have religion as a secondary piece to it. So the idea is you as an individual or you as a homemaker, mostly women, are responsible for the health of your family. And that is both a, a Christian responsibility, a religious responsibility, but also a um, sort of a, a motherly uh, duty. And so, yeah, all of those things are really linked, the idea of piety, saving us somehow from disease, and that's such a horrible and inaccurate reading of, of what, what should be the, 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 Jesus message, which is not necessarily the same as the Christian message.
0: Right? Oh my gosh. I have like 10 questions I want to ask you, but I'm going to hold because I want to go back to, so your weight cycling, you're feeling a lot of shame about your body. At what point does it start to shift? What was kind of the entryway or the open door for you? Yeah, I had always been defiant.
1: I had (laughs) always... I love a defiant person. Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) I would at once feel a ton of shame. And then in my shame, I would, um, you know, at the coffee hour, eat three bagels because I know my mom wouldn't shame me in front of anyone else because far more important was decorum and, you know, I would get it later. But...
0: Defiant and strategic is what I'm hearing. <laughs> I'm, yeah, because a
1: bitch is hungry. You know what I mean? Like, Nutris okay, is it a nutrition system that has the like rehydrated food. Yeah, I, I, bagels look really good. So um, so I would always be defiantly um, eating or, um, you know, these kind of things or or saying, you know, projecting a confidence that I really didn't feel inside as a means or be you know being funny all these kind of things that are actually I hope part of my personality but they were in in um, you know turned up to 11 at all times to hide what I thought was the sin of my fatness because no matter what I did no matter what I achieved I was high achieving I was you know well liked but no matter what I achieved or who liked me I always did it while fat and so that overlay of fatness tamp down my joy, tamp down any sense of, of anything I did was was good enough. Um, because I always did it while fat. I, I it, And you're taught to mistrust your body and mistrust, you know, you know that boy doesn't really like you, how could he, you know, that kind of thing. So always somebody else's gaze, primarily the male gaze. Um, and, and I never stacked up to that. So I had to project a confidence and a defiance of that that weirdly did appeal to people. So I I was never lonely. I was not, you know, I was always surrounded by people who I think if they heard this in my middle age would say that was you. Well, yeah, it definitely was. And so it wasn't until my mother's death, um, this woman that I so loved, I talk about it in the book, um, when she died, she had a 10 year bout of cancer and it sapped from her all of the beauty trappings that we both really you know she had this perfectly quaffed hair this big you know helmet that she did once a week on fridays and then had the tape that taped it down by the night time slept like this like carefully <laughs> um and and you know always a face of makeup always um beautifully put together in all of those ways that that In the South, Southern beauty is supposed to be in terms of white Southern beauty. Beauty space, Um, and and cancer took it all from her. Um, And the piece that she, even her eyes, she had these beautiful blue eyes, and um, she had a brain tumor, and so one of her eyes involuntarily closed, and she couldn't keep her. You know, she lost it in chemo, and so there were all of these sort of indignities of beauty, um, but they were paired with weight loss so she went from a size eighteen twenty to a size 6 on her deathbed and the the issue was first people were praising her weight loss as she was sick which was rough to hear Um, but then also she died and she couldn't stay in the pajamas I would get her she'd go smaller smaller but she also wouldn't give herself any food so like she wouldn't put whole milk on her cereal she wouldn't Um, put Nutella. She loved chocolate. She wouldn't put Nutella on toast. Anything that would give her a little joy or caloric strength at the time, she couldn't do because it was skim milk. Nutella was weight. You couldn't do it. And I got pissed. I just, it broke my fat shame. I said, I can't live like this. Um, And I I honestly, going to the religious part of me, I realized that weight loss for her had become an idol in her life and had taken and gone above at her, her own health and wellness. And so she was willing to believe diet culture over what her dying body was telling her. And that was like, yeah, no, I, I'm, I loved her. I didn't fight her on it. I tried to do what I can. She had the most beautiful at home death. We were all around her holding her hands. It was horrible and wonderful at the same time as death is. And when that was over, I decided that for once and for all, I was going to figure out what fat was. So I started researching it and that was in uh, 2013, started researching it. And I thought that I was going to find out how horrible it was and all this kind of stuff. And I started getting the real, like once I read public health and found about the obesity paradox and found out about the non-correlation and like all of these kind of things, social determinants of health. I just was, I, my mind was blown and I was pissed. And yeah, I was pissed. And I realized that my mom had had this hoax and I wasn't going to live like that anymore. And every book I read had something that pointed to faith, but no one was in the space talking about faith and so like graham right we know about um his work on the graham cracker and his sort of um, sanitarium which was for people to go purify themselves in michigan and um he was religious and so we always talk about the diet aspect of that the the vegan diet, or the, I think, vegan or vegetarian diet, the the milk um and water that he told us to, you know, the exercise, all these things that have kind of become part of our milieu that come from Graham, that come from John Wesley, that come from all these people, but that we don't talk about in fat studies that having a religious connection so much. So that was why I ended up at the book. So 10 years of personal research, realizing I'd been duped, And then really wanting others to make that religious connection about how the church was really part of determining that that the U.S. would be so anti-fat. Yeah. Wow.
0: Like, what a story, Anna. I mean, that's just, I really, gosh, I really resonate with watching an elder that you care for, like, literally on her deathbed, refusing joy and nourishment. I mean, is there anything? Yeah. My, um, my mother-in-law lives with us where her caregiver, she's 78. And when she first moved in, like when you said you got pissed, I, I was shocked how deep in the grips of diet culture and anti-fatness she was. She would, she's, you know, like her favorite thing is gummy bears or, and wine gums. And, um. oh my gosh, like muffins and croissants, like beautiful food. And she just would deny, deny, deny. And we were trying to increase her weight because she had gotten so thin and was not actually nourishing the way she needed to for her own health as she was starting to get, you know, increasing dementia and blah, blah, blah. But it was, and I I, I, I did not be, not behave well towards her, but like I did not react well because I just was like, You're 78, like do what you want, do what makes you feel good. Like, and it was just such um, an affront. The how, I think for me, what the the most shocking part was just how deep this went. Like it was inconceivable to her to enjoy food and the things that she'd be like, no, no white rice. And we're like, actually you need white rice because you need to poop. And like, you know, and it would be like, no, I will not. And de- and it's like, okay, but you'd rather take pills for constipation. Like it was like that kind of mentality. And it, it just, God, it just really, it really hit home for me. This is about th- uh, two, two and a half years ago now when we brought her in and I was like, whoa, there's a whole other thing in my home that I did not
1: expect. And yeah. So think about that because like she's 78, like I'm in my forties, like my mom died in her eighties, but she was my grandmother. So like with every generation, my grandmother was who they first marketed this to. Post World War II, um, Ansel Keys and all of that was very live. And so she, you know, in the eighties, she was in her middle age. In the eighties, when the uh, when Jane Fonda and the health, um, you know, the heart, cardiac stuff started coming. So like she just followed that trajectory her whole life and it was always part and parcel of failure to as a woman in particular to allow yourself bodily pleasure and joy. Now add on top of that, that's all the secular stuff. Add on top of that the piety. And you're just screwed two ways to Sunday. There's no way to get fine joy. Like what you gonna do? Price is right, doesn't do it for me. You know.
0: Well, and like, I'm also pretty astounded that, you know, how many years later you and I can have this conversation, I have a podcast, you have a book, you know, uh, calling out the bullshitness of this. Like, we have the benefit, I guess, the hard-earned benefit of the people who've come before us, of being able to question, which she has never been able to actually critically question any of the systemic oppressions that she's been given you know from racism to her ideas about food to her ideas about all these other things like it's just that's that's just the way it is and you know there was there's no conversation there so i i do feel a little more hopeful uh, for two generations hence Uh, maybe this will be gone Um, (laughs) i love the phrase that you used when weight loss becomes an idol whoa that hit i felt that bodily
1: because that's kind of what please read please please this is not even my quote this is the quote that i start the book with um and it's by michelle Lelka, Lelka, who wrote um i think she wrote the religion of thinness i'd have to see i think that's hers i've read (laughs) um, but it says you probably do not consciously define your life's purpose according to the myth of thinness if asked what you most value, the list would most likely include things like God, your health, love and compassion, inner peace, and your family. Few of us would respond that the size and shape of our figure is what truly matters. But in our everyday thoughts and actions, the possibility of being thinner may in fact function as our most cherished value and our most precious ambition.
0: 100 effing percent 100 right? percent. Idle. yeah vital. Yeah. oh god anti-fatness diet culture systems of oppression have done such a good job and here's what i think is so fascinating anna is like you really went in kind of blank slate and researched because that's what you do that is you are your profession and found the truth like a conspiracy hunter <laughs> you've found it
1: (laughs) I didn't find. I found the people who had found it right and the story very much on this is this is a uh, this is a good primer for anyone who's entering the space because I didn't I didn't discover it I just sort of uncovered what other people have said about it and put it into a easy digest form
0: (laughs) which is so great when did you decide to write this book because like, so you're doing this research, it's like 10 years you're realizing, holy shit, oh my goodness, I you've changed how you operate in the world. Then when did you, because it's a pretty big thing to be that visible and be like, now I'm going to tell everybody else.
1: What, tell me about that journey. Okay, so like I had been keeping notes on my phone, you know, how when, like, when you get a good idea or when you're pissed or when you think, you know, and so I had all these notes on my phone and I talked to a couple of people, I talked to my pastor, I talked to a couple of people about how the links, like how I was, I talked to my uncle and I had, um, when my dad was dying, we had a lot of time in the car going back and forth to Tennessee. And so we talked a lot. Uh, I talked to my husband. and And so I was talking to friends about this link between, I really think there's something here and I'm waiting for the person to write the book on it, right? So there had been these books that were around seminaries uh, that that fo- folks saw born again bodies and the religion of thinness and these other ones um but the there wasn't a primer and there wasn't one that was directed necessarily to the people in the pews it was more to us academics talking to each other and so i was really interested in one that was talking both to progressive uh, progressive christians in the pews about american anti-fatness being rooted in in religion but then also about um for the people outside of the pews giving them an introduction to how religion is culpable religion uh, christian protestant religion is culpable white christian protestant religion is culpable um so i was talking to people and they were like you need to write this and i i was like I, somebody somebody else is doing it and i started I like this person can do it this person can do it and i was waiting for somebody to do it and no one did it and so at the beginning of the pandemic, um, a friend of mine, uh, my pastor, in fact, said, hey, did you know that Pilgrim Press is having this uh, c- like a contest where they first time authors can d- give a five page pitch? And I literally it was due that day. I had ignored it for three weeks and I was like, I'm not gonna and I was just like, you know what? F it. And so I went into my notes and it was a jumbled mess. And I organized it and I wrote a cover letter all in two hours as a very much like, whatever, I'm just gonna send it out, you know. And I I wrote this this proposal and I was one of four people who out of like 50, 60 people were chosen to have a conversation. And then I was so grateful when um when the editor uh when uh, Katie and Rachel came on. Um, they uh, immediately said, Hey, you've got something here. And honestly, until I heard them say that, I didn't even know if it was possible. And so they really championed the work and said, Write it. And then the pandemic, you know, had some time to myself. And so I wrote it in July of 21, I guess, and then edited it through 22. And it came out this year. It was really a, it was really a final, it was just an organizing of the notes I've been keeping for those 10 years and sort of being like, okay, here you go.
0: I love that you had actually already been writing the book, but it was the stepping forth, being called into writing the book that was like that last step. Isn't that amazing? Hello, Sophia here, interrupting myself to invite you to the Fat Joy newsletter. You've heard me talk about how I created Fat Joy out of rage. Well, this newsletter was created out of longing, a longing for more connection to the Fat Joy community. I'm also creating community through Fat Joy workshops. So if you're also craving connection and spaces where you can explore your own Fat Joy, become a subscriber of the newsletter because that's where I'll be sharing all the workshop details. You can head to fatjoy.substack.com where you can become a subscriber for free or for five dollars a month to get some bonus content you are wonderful thank you so much for being here enjoy the rest of the episode
1: it's and but it's like it's all these little conversations that we have these kind of conversations matter Right? Just naming, hey, I'm having this connection. Somebody else can then be looking out for your blessing, or for what else? What what is it that you need to do? And they can offer that to you. It's a power of friendship, right? Oh, I love it. Thank you for sharing
0: that. I love hearing again. It's the coach in me. I can't help it. I love hearing moments of courage, grit when people just really step into the realm of possibility. So, thank you for sharing that with me. That just makes me feel so happy and like proud of you
1: in not a weird way. Like, I'm so proud of you. I'm so thrilled. Well, it always, in my world, it's weird. It always comes as defiance. It's never, I don't, I mean, maybe it's courage and grit, but for me, it always is like, there really is the fuck it moment. There really is the moment that you're like, you know what, whatever, um, take me or leave me. I am what I am, you know, and, and it, and it, and that sort of pushes me over the edge. And it is this sort of like, No, I'm just going to do it. So I guess it. I don't know. It doesn't feel like courage. It feels like defiance.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think they're so linked. I don't know. Can you be defiant without being courageous?
1: Well, there's truth in that, I guess. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: yeah I love it. Whatever the energy is. I mean, I kind of run on rage, so yeah, I feel right. like
1: <laughs> Exactly. There's that great cake meme that has the cake and it's so beautifully decorated and it's uh, um it just says, I am filled with love and rage. Yeah, that is me. Oh I know. I'm like, yeah, I want that cake every birthday. I am filled with love and rage. <laughs> that may right. have to be my next
0: tattoo. I know, right? It's perfect. Yes. So I want to read, I, I love your website. It's fatchurch.org. Of course, I'll be l- linking to it in the show notes. Um, But I just, I loved what you wrote here and I just want to read it. And then we're going to, I want to dive into um, kind of yeah, where you what you explore in the book. So you write, less of a church, more of a movement. Fatness is not a sin, nor does it fi- nor is it a failing of willpower or a moral evil. Fatness is simply a much aligned, naturally occurring body type that's scapegoated in a society that values thin, white, and able body, abled bodies over all others. Fat church is a movement inviting Christians to examine their own biases against fatness hold them to the light of the gospel of God's freedom and abundance, and imagine a society where all bodies are liberated from anti-fat oppression. It is a movement for fat folks, not-so-fat folks, outright thin, I love outright thin folks, and whoever else would like to join. If you're a person of faith and want to know how anti-fatness fits in with the other oppressions in our society, racism, white supremacy, homophobia, patriarchy, Come on in. There's plenty of room. Our chairs are ample, sturdy, and armless, and we've got great snacks. (laughs) I mean, sign me up immediately. (laughs) I love this invitation to Christians to examine their own biases in a way that, I mean, so certainly when I think about my religious background, which was Greek Orthodoxy, yeah, bodies were only ever talked about as in your body is a temple. Like, I literally heard that all the time. We did, um, in our in our uh, religion, we did fasting for communion. So, a little different than Catholicism. We actually would not eat or drink for certain amounts of, certain number of days before receiving communion. Um, and it was always this idea of controlling what goes in our mouth. So it was control. It was your body's a temple It is it was meant to be kind of dominated by you. And it was, and I remember, I can remember God, like, um, it, you know, because I was bigger. I, it's so funny now. It's very funny now to look back at photos of myself. I'm like, God, I wasn't like fat at all. But I was by, like, the expectations of others and the standards of that time, I guess. And I felt like I was massive. Um And I had a lot, I mean, of course, I had a lot of internalized fat phobia and anti-fatness. Um But, like, this whole rhetoric around... Uh, I must be doing something wrong. There's something wrong with me because how can I control all these other areas? Because my family was all about control, emotional control, like you control your mind and you do great in school. Like everything was about control. And so therefore, I there must be some slice of me that is not able to be controlled. Therefore, that defiance, like my body doing it without my quote unquote permission or I must not be trying. It was like I was always in the wrong. And the and and you know like your body is a temple. The fasting for communion. I remember fasting and my parents, um, you know, indicating, well, maybe I'll lose a little bit of weight. Like, so there were all these. That was all put on it, all mixed in there with all the other stuff that kind of comes with, you know, what you should and should not do with your body.
1: Right. Right. And they're all linked, right? They're all linked. I mean, that's the thing. And and you know, I I now serve a, a church, the United Church of Christ, that is um, highly progressive in its social commitments, and also, for the most part, everybody at least that I know is 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 pretty socially progressive. So um, we really understand the the oppressions that are that are linked and overlinked. But that that thing that you've just said about like control. That's what the church has wanted, right? And the church writ large, I'm talking capital C church, um, that has been filtered down through, you know, all, all the way through. I mean, I'm talking the Platonic ideal, the idea of dualism where the head it, or the soul, wherever that resides, is, um, somehow against the body. And there's this forever good and evil, Um, Angel and devil kind of interaction where, you know, the angel is saying carrot and the devil is saying a cupcake. Well, that's bullshit. That is absolute bullshit. That's not the way any of that works. We are embodied and so glad that there's so much somatic research nowadays that talks about how embodied we are i don't know why philosophers always thought that the head gets information somehow objectively without connecting with the body and so um yeah but it but it has to do with patriarchy and the control of women's bodies in particular and asceticism and controlling appetites including lust so all of these kind of things were wrapped and it It comes out the end as white supremacy and racism and homophobia and patriarchy and all these other things, but it also comes out as anti-fatness. And I didn't have my really progressive Christian colleagues who I was excited to talk about Black Lives Matter. I was excited to to talk about all sorts of these wonderful things that we were doing, but we never got to wear anti-fatness. As soon as I said anti-fatness, they were like, I'm going Peloton, I'm heading out, you know, and it was like, you know, or whatever. And I was like, well, why can't we talk about this intersection too? Because it's all rooted in the same um, Christian piety and um, purity culture is what it is.
0: Yeah. Purity of body and mind and, oh, oh my God, I'm exhausted just remembering back to like the kind of control that I was supposed to have as like as a child over my body. Yeah. And I love what you said around that. um, We still have that dichotomy, like that angel devil on our shoulders. Like when we say, "Oh, I'm being so bad today. I'm eating French fries." Ooh, right? Like it's still the bullshit is still around. Yes,
1: all the time. You know, like oh god, the, the halo top. Halo top ice cream. Why is it a halo top? Why has it got to be a halo top? Because it is this Christian ice cream. Is it somehow blessed by the freaking Pope? It is not. It is just lower fat, and therefore we're innocent. There's just these, this language around moralizing food, but all the wellness culture. You know, wellness as a concept arose in the 70s, and I mean there were wellness things before then, but it really got this resurgence in the 70s. But it was in the, coming out of the 60s and the 50s with like the fat underground, but also like the Young Lords and the Black Panthers who were all like doing community public health. And they were saying they're not caring for us. They're not caring for us. They're not caring for our communities. The white money doctors do not care about our communities, So they would do these clinics and, and, you know, the fat underground ended up getting um, health at every size and all of these sort of things that they were doing communally. Well, what happens is these were all appropriated by the white hippie counterculture. And with a little bit of appropriation of, of, of uh, Eastern religions, such as yoga and these spiritual practices from Eastern religions, yoga, vegan diets, raw diets, and they had this, this similar mistrust of, of, of Western medicine that the Young Lords, the, the Black Panthers, the um, Fat Underground, everybody had. But they, they did it for individual care you can take control over your own body, as opposed to the communal care of they're not treating us as a community, what can we do to to benefit the community? And that's when whiteness took over, um, even in this sense of communal wellness and care. And so I just think wellness, wellness if said through a sort of white lens, back ends to individual body optimization
0: yes like the biohacking stuff that people are doing
1: now yeah all of this right like yeah it's it's so fascinating to me and that's so different than where I think Jesus was going Jesus is about communal public health and communal wellness every time he restored someone it was to their community and for the sake of their community not for some individual who had prayed enough or done enough? They often hadn't done very much at all, and he did it because of or be, or in in recognition of community. Um, and so <laughs> those other groups had it right, and 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 hippie wellness has it so wrong. Yeah, talk
0: to us some more about the religious implications here. Like you like, I was I was gonna say, tell me more about Jesus.
1: Um <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <gonna> go
0: <laughs> the tie-ins to so I guess so we've we've talked kind of higher level about how this shows up. I'm really curious about so I go to church, I hear a sermon, like what is actually being preached that we don't even know is anti-fatness like and I think there's probably two well there's probably more than two levels but what I'm thinking of there's like the actual kind of religiosity piece and then there's like the socio-cultural piece of like the potlucks and the community groups like there's a there's a couple of levels working when it comes to a religious
1: organization right 100 percent yeah I should say I talk about Christianity because that's where I my social location. But this is probably happening in any number of spaces. And I'm very specifically talking about white Protestant Christianity. Again, not because that's the only place where anti fatness exists, but it is the place that I inhabit where I see anti fatness happening. So I don't want to say that this is, a you know, it is a broader Christian problem in the sense that the Christian church has been so culturally imbued into American culture that one cannot necessarily eschew some of the values that have written itself into our democratic space, but at the same time, this could be showing up in other religious traditions. So, so just want to be honoring the fact that I'm not speaking for every person of faith. What I'm talking about, I'm talking pretty pretty from my own space. Yeah.
0: Well, and I will I will just jump in and say. I have interviewed Minna Bromberg who who writes uh, on like Fat Torah. Yeah. So it's very, it's very interesting to to hear the similarities to what you're saying and what Mina has said. So yeah. Yeah. So it does show up in Judaism as well.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, I mean, anti-fatness shows up, I'm sure in a lot of, a lot of places, um, but I just want to, I wanted to, to put that caveat on, but that the, the important thing is that, There, there there's a shrinking number of people who are, um, who are choosing church. And I think that's because of how the church has been so damaging to people. Um, and, uh, you know, we have not been, uh, accountable to the many structures of oppression that have been rooted in our teachings and the theologies of early Uh, earlier and current, uh, church folks. I mean, it, you just, not every, uh, Christian church is the Christian church of Ron DeSantis and all of the, you know, um, the folks who are, who are anti-trans, for example. Um, and, and so we, we have these structures of oppression in the church that people are rightfully running from. Um, and yet there is a remnant of people who are still holding on to the idea of the institution of church as a place of intergenerational connection where the work of social justice can be seeded and done with the resources of structure that have been existent for, for hundreds of years. So even though there are, you know, a lot of people are activists in this in their own little spaces. And I think they have, and they're growing movements and that's incredibly hard and wonderful work. I just sit there and look at all these churches with their buildings and their endowments and their money, which are shrinking, but I just see them as resources to be tapped, to fight the things that we were actually responsible in a large part for creating and sustaining. Um, and so like that is what I know so many of my progressive Christian friends are doing in their own churches, my church. And that's why we, we want to re, reorganize around, uh, around a movement. Uh, that's why Fat Church is, is, you know, is a movement in the, in the goal is it, for it to be a movement of people who are aligned with a the theology of abundance with a theology of body liberation that doesn't stop at fatness that stops at um you know nobody should be uh you know oppressed for any reason and and the the myriad oppressions that exist how can we put the the resources of the church toward um toward ending those. And so, yeah, and I think that that's what Jesus would have done. Like, talk about Jesus. He was a criminal that was put to death by by the state. He had a band of followers. He was a super influencer, and then he went all the way down, right? So, like, you want to call him all these different things, but what he was was concerned that people would be in community, that the right relationship of God would be one out of love and concern for one another, concern for the earth, concern for the people around um, and, and he was creating a movement. He was never creating a church. Um, and so I think that's when the church begins to be too precious about its own control is actually when we got off the rails. And, um, that was in, you know, 313 AD. So. <laughs> <laughs> so <you've been>
0: <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> oh my God. The picture you paint of a church that would organize in that way and have social justice as it's like rallying cry. I mean, oh my I mean oh, I've I've never experienced anything like that. I can I mean, I I I feel so hopeful at the thought of something like that. I would want to go to something like that in your church and churches like yours that you're you know you and you're a pastor you're leading this what is different like do you look at bible teachings and interpret them differently like what what is materially different about how you do this
1: yeah that's a great question i i, I maybe the the things that i would say is first the um the clergy who have these commitments are oftentimes people who have either themselves been hurt by the church and have only remained so much as they have eschewed some of the previous beliefs, um, or they have they, their heart is so um, broken for the needs of the world and they see how these systems of oppression make those pains insurmountably harder um and so you know i don't and i and i think unfortunately those who are on a a a different version of, of christianity than i am um who see you know who who um who don't see systems of oppression but they think that the church itself is the answer there's no need to actually worry about the oppressions of this world because heaven is my home. So what we have to do here is just prepare ourselves for heaven. And so what is different between our church and other churches materially is the idea of what it's a big word. You ready for it? It's called realized eschatology. Ooh, eschatology. I like it. Realized eschatology. So the idea that the eschaton or the return of Christ or the reign of God, however you want to say that, The idea of a one-day paradise where there is no more pain, suffering, where justice is whole is the way I would put it. Um, But other people think of that as heaven lined with gold and all we have to do is make sure we get there so that we can see our loved ones again. And the churches that are so concerned with gatekeeping heaven tend to be concerned with gatekeeping our bodies um, gatekeeping our sexualities, gatekeeping our communities. Yeah, so you earn your way in by being pure and small. That's right. Being pur- pure and small, right? Especially if you're a woman. Um, and so that gatekeeping of heaven is very different. That's what's materially different. From, from my pulpit, you'll get a lot of talk about how to live in the here and now in a way that is aligned with the values of Jesus. And I think there are a lot, that is not, I'm not unique. I'm not even that great of a preacher. That is not even like, but that is what you get from my pulpit. What you get from a lot of other pulpits is do these things right so that you can get to heaven because that's the ultimate reward. But I'm really concerned at what happens in this world. And I think Jesus was too, or he never would have come, (laughs) you know? Yeah.
0: Well, and so, as you're creating what I hear, what I might call like a community of care, it's so interesting. I'm thinking about, so I coach and facilitator at a really wonderful writing studio that I talk about all the time on this podcast because it has, right? It has shaped so much of how I have learned about anti-oppression and you know so when we gather for a workshop we have permissions and community of care agreements that we go over with people that we really say okay so you know we're striving to create an anti-oppressive space and what that looks like is xxx and we actually have like ways of being the bumbling humans that we are acknowledging we're going to make mistakes talking about repair, but also flagging like, so these are the things that are okay and these are really the things that are not. Because I'm just imagining, Anna, you know, so you've given a beautiful sermon, people are maybe doing like a little coffee hour, a potluck. Do you have a rule like no
1: diet talk? Like, do you get really practical? This is a great question. Okay, so the first time my own congregation will hear much about this other than me talking one-on-one with people and interrupting anti-fatness when i see it one-on-one i'm at the point in my stage where i don't put up with diet talk in front of me i always try to talk about like uh you know oh you look great you lost weight oh did you find some you know just little little that you can be able to you know i i interrupt the diet talk i interrupt the moralized food talk but in a systemic way, the first time they're going to hear about this is August 20th, which is a little ways from now, because I have not talked about this. This is, uh, you know, not from the pulpit. There is still i um, I'm being really honest, there's still a fear in me. I, I situate in in Massachusetts where there's a ton of health and wellness. These are, for the most part, suburban white people. There's moneyed people. There's doctors. You know, I do worry. Um, in some ways about um, not, I'm I'm not afraid of talking about it. That's not it at all. What I'm afraid of is we can talk about these other oppressions and, and we can agree on the system being effed, right? And there is something so unique that that's why when I talk to my most progress, progressive Christian friends, they can, sometimes cannot get around this idea that fatness is just a self-oppression, and so you're actually appropriating oppression to feel oppressed when all you really need to do is stop eating Twinkies, which is just as many times as I've heard that. And and it's it's so so that's the piece that like and so you can't just I I I do use the word fat in the you know the welcome I I do these things. But to really do the work, I wrote a 40 page uh, question, uh, questionnaire that's at the back of just like chapter through chapter questions to ask personally and questions to ask for small groups, intending for this to be a book that was picked up with small group book work in churches. So I I hope in my own church that's when we're beginning our our journey. And so um because it has to be a journey and it has to be this like slow dismantling. Um, so I had to write it first partly because I needed to know what I needed to say and um and organize my thoughts. But now that I've got it now that the book is kind of launched, um it's time for me to do that work in my own congregation not just personally but but it can be and that's another big
0: visible step, um, and I, I get the, the the fear around it because if, as someone who has had these conversations a lot as well, if people aren't interested in acknowledging a sliver of what I'm saying could be true, there's just nowhere to go, right? No, you're fat, you're unhealthy, you did to yourself, you're going to die any day. There's nothing, there's nowhere for us to go. It's such a, like when people dig in, they are dug in. And then what? Like you're their pastor, you lead them. Like I, yeah, I'm, we'll have to have you back and see how it goes. (laughs) I think it's going to be great. I think, I mean. I
1: hope so. I've been grateful. I think the, the buying the credibility of several years of being their pastor, um, they, they, they have seen it casually, now that we're going to be like digging into it and having these conversations, hopefully it'll hopefully it'll go well. It, it, it's been received well so far for there's certainly we have congregants who've read it. Um, and you know, I, I think it is going well. I'm grateful for it, yeah.
0: if there was one one thing from the book that you would really want like everyone to hear, let's imagine this podcast gets into everyone in the human race's ear. Could you imagine? um what like what would that be? What would you want them to know? The church
1: has been wrong, full stop. And I think that my book, there's a lot of books that say that. Um, but there's a lot of people in the pews and a lot of people who have left the pews for very good reason that haven't heard a lot of Christians say out loud, the church has been wrong. I'm sorry. And the church has some repentance to do, but it's, but it's paired with and the repentance is not fatness we, it, I, I fat identity, unrepentant fat identity and abundance and and love of god is is what I think we could and will change the world if we are able to um, really embrace what it means to be abundant with each other and in this world and 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 I think that. The the church is wrong, I'm sorry, and I'm sorry what it's done to your body um, is what I would want it to, I, I, on on behalf of whoever I have to say that for. You are beloved if you are fat, you are beloved if you are queer, you are beloved if you are black or brown, you are beloved if you are disabled, you are beloved in all of these ways, and the church has had it wrong, and I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm
0: receiving that. Because that was not the message. It was like, you are beloved if.
1: That's it. It's a full stop. It's a full stop. You are beloved. You're beloved. And you're beloved if you, no matter what you do, you cannot run from your belovedness.
0: Oh, yeah. Can you imagine if we all believed that i i literally could weep just thinking like feeling into that if we all fully believed on our own inherent worthiness our own birthrights our own belovedness
1: that's right
0: and that abundance is a birthright Mm -hmm. oh that's it yeah that's the kind of world i want to create yeah absolutely you
1: are creating it yeah you know that's and the church is the one that structured it and strictured it and and tried to control it and tried to control this this Sunday. This lectionary is about the the parable of the mustard seed, and it's this parable where Jesus says in two sentences, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and uh, those of us in more progressive spaces who don't like male hierarchy might say the kingdom of heaven is like, yeah, so we've well little we'll play on the kingdom of is like a mustard seed, and not only the small start, the slow-growing small start, but also mustard is a prolific, weed-like, sturdy-ass plant, and it gets everywhere. It is an invasive species, and so when Jesus is saying, have faith like a mustard seed, it is both to have just the tiniest bit of faith that something might grow, and also the tenacity to get in and around Briared places and to choke out injustice and so like that is like what would it look like to 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 be an invasive species of love and belovedness and abundance in this world that is what i'm hoping we can do um with a bunch of unrepentant fatties in the church unrepentant
0: fatties oh my god that's another tattoo oh, there you go absolutely <laughs> Wow. It's just, it's so powerful, Anna. I really, I really feel it's having me think about things like gluttony and like all of these mess like again, all these messages that I've received as like an occasional churchgoer as a kid, right?
1: Even occasional churchgoer, it was just so in there. Yeah, you hear, you hear pastors, it sucks. You hear pastors using fatness as a quick example of sin you you see you see um pastors posting their weight loss journeys and or or saying like hey let's all lose weight as a congregation and it, it's just so casual and no one recognizes that the church is why we think that in so many ways and the and the way the history has played itself out yeah is it, okay conspiracy time yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, My assumption is this has all been by design to get power over.
1: Yes? I I mean, initially, absolutely. Um, One of the cool things that I've learned when I was reading is there's this wonderful book uh, called Saving Paradise that talks about how the first thousand years of the church, the central symbol was Eucharist. The central symbol was abundance and paradise and this idea of Eden, you know, it's it's just this. And and then around the thousand to eleven hundred mark, we, we, the church inst, uh, instituted the primary symbol of the crucifix, of of the symbol of of torture and death. Um, and and how that symbol wasn't, you know, you can go to the earliest places, and you don't see that symbol as much because the the symbols that you see are loaves and fishes and 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 abundance and and Eden. Um, And, and so just again, yeah, it was by design, it was to fear and guilt, you know, Jesus died for you. And so you shouldn't sin. And here, let me list for you all those sins. And here it's particularly bad if you're a girl, right? And so it's all of that was, was played to prop up control, money, patriarchy, all of those things for the church. Yeah. They knew it. (laughs) Ah. absolutely yeah babe you get church history is dirty doesn't mean there weren't good people trying to do good things but they're also you know in in trying to do you know they they were creating systems of oppression right it's yeah
0: well i'm so both like I'm furious and I'm also so happy and joyful to talk to you about this and that you are bringing your brilliance and your voice and like exposing this and inviting people to contemplate it and think further and to examine their own biases and their own assumptions and to just like please pull the curtain back a little bit for the sake of others if not for yourself like I, I just I'm so in awe of the work that you're doing Anna and i want to ask you about your joy how do you connect to joy what's your relationship
1: to joy tell us about
0: your version
1: great question um i always like one of my like little personal like mantras is i i want to laugh every day and i want to see something beautiful every day and so it's the if if I've laughed every day and I've seen something beautiful, then that was a day that I could kind of check mark. And the funny thing is is that if you don't take yourself or this world too seriously, you almost always laugh every day. And if you um you know anything i there was this most beautiful oil slick in a puddle on com Ave right outside my office the other day. And it was just shiny and iridescent. You can see beauty anywhere too. And so it's it's it. And that speaks to the abundance that's around us. So I think that is, you know, cultivating as a practice, laughter and and beauty. Um, I like aesthetics. I like um, that. And then just surrounded by really good people who keep me honest and, and love me very well.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's perfect. I love that. I love the noticing of the beauty as well because it, it's it's something we have to do intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is such good advice. Everyone listening, laugh every day and notice something beautiful every day. I think that's a profound practice, Anna. Thank you so much. This has been a true pleasure and a very abundant joy. Thank
1: you. Well, it's it's been so great. I'm so grateful for um, for a conversation around fatness to center on joy is really important, and, and I'm really grateful for what I would call your ministry and uh, and and your your work in this in this space. So thank you for the opportunity.
0: Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about, expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy and inviting in joy. So each week you get a new poem. In this episode, Anna invites us to think critically about our beliefs and what we've been told while still holding a connection to the belief that there's something greater than ourselves. And this poem by Chen Chen is its own conversation with the divine. It's called, God, God's Powers, Lord, Universe. And here it is. If you cannot, at the moment, give me much joy, I get it. I have asked and received many a great joy already. Just give me, if you can spare it, a small joy, say, the size of a ketchup packet. If that's too much to ask for, then how about a small kindness, a tiny kindness, the size of a kiss from a dust moat? No? Okay. Would it be possible for you to take away some things then? For instance, the soreness on the right side of my neck? If you could remove maybe half a pinch of that soreness, I would leap up as though it were a great joy. I mean, it would absolutely be a great, great joy. Thank you in advance, O oh highest, oh muddiest, O oh most. Still no? Well, what about this sense that everything has become very slippery? Everything is slipping right out of my fingers and faster every day. I'm not asking you to cure my fear nor unslipify my fingers. Only if you could, if you had a quarter of a split nanosecond, it would be greatly appreciated. See, I don't need joy or kindness or catch up. I beg you, if you are a being, a higher, some mysteries that can listen, can mercy, I just need to lose a little less quickly. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Substack at fatjoy.substack.com. And please do check out the episode notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And we'll talk again soon.